We are underway here at the Glen Show. I'm with Daniel Besner. Daniel teaches at the Scoop Jackson, that's Henry Jackson School of <laughs> International Studies, not Affairs, at the University of Washington. He writes in The Nation and in The New Republic and other such places. He's a man of the left. Uh, he is an intellectual historian, and he is a veteran of the Glen Show because Daniel, bless him, way back, I don't know, almost a year ago, did a series of interviews with me on my intellectual origins, which uh, helped me getting my mind around this memoir that I'm still struggling to complete, but that also was, uh, I think, independently useful and enlightening as Daniel exhibited his mastery of uh, literatures and his thoughtfulness and so forth and so on. Anyway, so Daniel Besner is back. Hey, Daniel, how you doing? Thanks, uh, thanks for having me, Glenn. And and the one thing that that you um, forgot to mention is I'm the co-host of a new podcast called American Prestige. Um, and I think we'll talk a little bit about foreign affairs. But what the podcast uh, assumes and where it's different and how it's different from I would say most mainstream coverage is that it, it doesn't assume that American dominance of the world is necessarily the greatest thing. And if you uh, look at American foreign policy from a perspective that is skeptical of what some people call American leadership or others call American hegemony, or what I would call American empire, if you're skeptical of that position, how does that shape how you understand what's going on in the world? So I hope people take a chance to listen to that um, to listen to that, uh, that podcast. And if, if they uh, would, uh, subscribe would be really great. So we need that support. He needs the support, you guys. What's it called again? American what? American prestige, you know, a bit of a, a, a winking irony because everyone's always worried about American prestige. Um, so that now, is the title of the podcast. Something tells me that um, you've got a point of view on this and uh, <laughs> <laughs> a point of view that uh, some of my friends at the Hoover Institution, where I just signed on as a distinguished visiting fellow, had dinner with Condoleezza Rice and company uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was an interesting experience. Uh, would say is anti-American. They would say that you were, and American prestige at this moment, the moment being um, our withdrawal of forces and evacuation of personnel from uh, Afghanistan and all of the politics and international and domestic politics that swirls around that, it's especially propitious uh, that you'd be talking about American prestige at this moment. So what do you say to the anti-American charge? Uh well, I would say that it's actually more American. I mean, if you look at the broad sweep of American history from the founding in 1776 until roughly 1941, uh, when the United States entered World War II, one of the defining characteristics of uh, the country was to say disentangled from at least European affairs and to remain mostly confined to the Western Hemisphere. Now, while I personally think there are a lot of problems with American domination of Latin America and the Caribbean, um, you know, racist policy. Policies, um, very uh, uh, supporting of oligarchs policies, very pro-business policies at the expense of workers. It was true that the United States remained mostly uh, aloof from European and really global uh, outside the hemisphere affairs for the majority of its history. Um, people like Charles Beard, you know, arguing in the 1930s against uh, what became the American empire. So I would say it's actually a departure from uh, a more natural American condition to try to dominate the world. Um, and that it's a, one might even say, a perversion of the city upon a hill impulse, which was first declared in 1630 uh, by the... Um, pastor, I, I don't think he was officially, basically a church leader, John Winthrop, um, that the United States would serve as an example to the world. And it's only after 1945 that the United States tried to transform the world in its image. And I would say, just not not even uh, normatively, but just empirically, that's been a disaster for the country and for most people around the world. Um, it was good for about 20 years when the United States controlled 50% of world production when Europe committed suicide. Um, but after the 1970s, the maintenance of the American empire, I think, came at the expense of most Americans and most people in the world. All right, Daniel, I'm clearly playing into your wheelhouse, number one. You know what you're talking about, or at least you have fast knowledge that I don't have. Secondly, playing into a passion. Listen to you. Listen to you <laughs> emote it with respect. I don't say that as a derogatory comment. I mean, obviously you care. Um, there, there is a moral uh, indictment uh, implicit in, in what you say. I'm reminding my friend Stephen Kinzer, you know the uh, writer uh, with the book about the uh, about the um, what's the name brothers? What are the brothers? The the uh, Dulles brothers. 
Dallas Brothers. I wanted to say Allen. I had my two L's, but nothing else right. But uh, but but American Empire, bad for the world, etc. And you know, my instinct is to disagree with you. After all, I just signed on at the Hoover Institution for War, Revolution, and Peace. So you know, I'm at least a moderate and probably even right of center in some of my reflexes. I want to say, yeah, empire, but also you know, I want to say Cold War. I want to say fascism, defeating. I mean, I you know, I know it was compli- complicated and whatnot. Uh, you end the uh, period of uh, of uh, kind of useful role of America in the world. You limit that to about twenty years. What century is that twenty good twenty years located in? <laughs> uh, I would say good twenty years for Americans, and I'd say roughly nineteen forty five to let's say the end of Bretton Woods in the early nineteen seventies. Um, but during that time, it wasn't especially great for the Guatemalans, the Iranians, the Vietnamese. The Cambodians or the Laotians, a lot of uh, significant damage was done uh, to those peoples. And, uh, you know, especially the Korean War, which resulted in 3.5 million Korean casualties. Um, so I think that though it, it was good for the uh, the average American citizen, the construction of sort of the American middle class, particularly the white American middle class in the 1950s and 1960s, although to what some degree- What do you think would be on- Excuse me. No, what no, would be on the southern end of the Korean Peninsula right now, uh, but for that, but for that war? Uh, and I, I really, I say this with trepidation because I don't know very much about it at all. <laughs> I have been to Seoul, and I have seen, you know, twenty first century, you know, uh, South Korea. It's pretty impressive, actually. Uh, so I don't know what's what's success. I don't, you know, a Juche utopia. These, <laughs> pardon? A Juche communist utopia. No, I mean I think that that the truth of the matter is is that it's um it's actually interesting because I'm going to make a philosophical point. Um, so I think the American desire to dominate the world actually emerges from a philosophy that you, I think, would disagree with, the progressive philosophy of the late 19th and early 20th century, which argues that human affairs could be manipulated effectively in a sort of a one-to-one matter, right? And this is what Hayek's criticizing. This is what von Mises is criticizing. This is what the conservative um, economics, which I think you are, are broadly aligned with philosophically, at least was criticizing, right? The idea that that some sort of like free market force is needed in order to truly govern human affairs and that the hand of the state uh, is not able to manipulate things as one might might suppose, uh, as a pro- the progressive movement argued. Um, I would actually say the American empire is just the internationalization of that impulse, the impulse to treat international politics as a risk board, the idea that the United States is able to manipulate these foreign nations in a meaningful way and essentially play God. So to me, it's always ironic when, when people who you know broadly agree with the Misesian or the Hayekian critique of progressivism then sort of turn around and then support American leadership or American hegemony or American empire, which uh, I think is in a profound contradiction to that initial philosophical impulse, which I think is right, at least on an international scale. I think it's more possible in local communities, in organic political communities, and much more difficult when you're trying to manipulate international relations in that progressive capital P way. Okay, okay, that's high theory. We, we're talking about what is and is not feasible for one society to influence the development of another, political and so on. You, you think scale is important, uh, and you think we way overshot, we being uh, Americans. Pax Americana post uh, the Second World War for a quarter century or so in the world that existed then. As you say, you're committing suicide is one thing, but fighting the Cold War, I assume you see no good... Uh, from the West for that spreading democracy, uh, human rights campaigns, uh, uh, hedging in uh, potentially expansionary powers. I don't know what you feel about China and Taiwan or whatever. I mean, you know, so I, 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 I don't see the full picture, but I do sense an intense moral condemnation of the American project. 
Well, I would just look at the numbers. Um, the historian Paul Thomas Chamberlain in a book called The Cold War's Killing Fields, colon, Rethinking the Long Peace, just does the numbers. 25 million people died in Asia as a result of Cold, for, Cold War conflicts. I think it'd be difficult to point to the United States as a harbinger of democracy when it did things like overthrow Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran, uh, Yacobo Arbenz in Guatemala, uh, participated in the coup in, in Chile in the early 1970s, in the Congo, helped you know support the Indonesian genocide of the mid-1960s, Central American death squads in the early 1980s. Uh, again, the- again, I get it. It's a rehearsed <laughs> litany of American wrongdoing. It's just I the understand facts. that. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm not disputing the facts. I'm asking for a So with the Soviet the Union, picture. so this is the critical story. Um, I think that documents that historians have been able to look at from the mid-1950s suggest that the Soviet Union, after Stalin's death in March 1953, was ready to actually reach a detente and and a coordinated peace with the United States. I think that's what the documentation shows. And I think it was American intransigence and American, frankly, fanaticism, the – I would actually say the imposition – onto the Soviet Union of the notion that they had a universalizing project that led the United States to fight the Cold War. What I you mean, think- the Soviets did not have a universalizing project. It was only I- American ideologues who envisioned such a project and projected it onto the Soviets. Yes. So you, if, you, if you look at Kennan, he basically argues Marxism-Leninism is this universalizing global project. And there's obviously an element in Marxism-Leninism that, that is that. Yeah, of course. I should have thought so, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. There's that element there. But I think the actual historical experience of governing the Soviet Union from the 20s to the 50s, socialism in one country, the fact that there was no communist revolution in Germany, which is what Lenin was really relying on when he first took power, um, shifted the scope of the Soviet project in, in in a meaningful way, where the Soviets didn't really think that there was going to be a worldwide workers' revolution that was going to bring forth communism. And they were actually trying to maintain their own society. And there was a shift in Soviet thinking, particularly after Stalin, um, that basically – in which a a bunch of the leadership – in my opinion, at least, we're ready to make a deal with the United States. Now, I think all of the major ideologies of modernity, uh, liberalism, let's say the U.S. represents liberalism, um, fascism, you know, which was defeated in World War II, and communism, which was embodied in the Soviet Union, all had universalizing elements, right? This is natural to modernity. You want the whole world to do it. But I think the practical experience changed those universalizing elements for the Soviet Union, and the practical uh, practical experience in the United States actually re-encouraged them to basically believe, which I think is a fantasy according to the conservative critique, that one is able to dominate the world in a meaningful way. Hold on. Okay. Domination, that's one thing. But universalizing the correct values for society is another. I mean, if you think you've got the correct value, universalizing projects are not all equal, uh, some of them, which again involve spreading the ideals about the dignity of the person and representative government and all of that. I understood that examples contrary to those ideals with blood on our hands can be exhibited, but nevertheless, looking at the long sweep of history, those aren't the same universalizing projects as uh, as what the uh, Soviets might have been up to, uh, to the extent that you're willing to concede that they were up to anything at all. And moreover, and I asked you this the last time we talked about this thing, when I look at the outcome, South Korea, North Korea, you know, when, when I look at what came about when the Soviet view of social organization got actually implemented on the ground in places, and I asked whether people were starving to death, I asked whether or not, et cetera, you know, modernization and all of that. Uh, I, I, you know, it, it doesn't look close to me. It, it, it looks like the Western liberal project, warts and all, had it hands down over. And when the people who had a chance to vote, either with their feet or through their subversive activities in Eastern and Central Europe, uh, acted on that, what happened was that the other project collapsed. Uh, yeah, I so, mean, I, I'm anti-authoritarian. I mean, I, I don't think necessarily a socialism necessitates authoritarianism. Uh, I think that might have been the the histori- what happened historically for a variety of reasons, mostly because capitalism – I think capitalism won after World War One, and we're living in sort of the world of capitalism where, where the entire global system is shaped by capitalist imperatives. <clears throat> Once the workers in Europe fought each other 
in World War One instead of you know uniting and not doing that. Uh, I think the game was over. I really think the the, the left wing project genuinely lost about a hundred years ago, a um, hundred plus wow. years ago now with World War One, and we're living in that hangover. So I would say that the um, people always say communism equals authoritarianism. I would say that proved to be the historic case in a world dominated by capitalism, where there were where all basically every major power um, except the Soviet Union, China was not a major power back then. Uh, adopted a particular political system and were united. Um, so I would also say that, you know, I'm an American and I, I like political liberty. I think political liberty is a good thing. Um, I would say that in the United States, the Cold War actually limited political liberty in a lot of meaningful ways. I think the Cold War provided, again, this is the critique that a conservative, I think, should agree with, uh, cr- yeah. um, provided for the creation of a Leviathan state, particularly in terms of national security and, and economic yeah. decision making. National Security Council, Council of Economic Advisors. What are, what are the Fed terms? 14 years, something like that. Um, in, right, so that is anti-democratic as far as I am concerned. Um, the people are basically allowed in this country to choose their p- uh, political leaders who then basically appoint experts who exist in a, an administrative state outside of democratic accountability. To me, the, the, cons- the that should be a conservative critique of that. That's anti-democratic, particularly we've seen, part of my language, we've seen how much the experts have fucked up uh, in terms of growing inequality, uh, in terms of the failures of Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and Yemen. You know, the, the litany goes on and on and on. Um, so I think what the Cold War did is allowed uh, American oligarchs to define democracy down to political democracy, not including social democracy, not including cultural democracy. So what I would want in you know a system of the future would be a combination of political liberties with other forms of liberties. And the political liberties are were undoubtedly denied in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, and they're undoubtedly denied in China today and in places like Cuba. But nevertheless, take the Rawlsian veil of ignorance. If you're a poor person, would you rather be in the United States where you can't have access to healthcare? Or would you rather be in Cuba? And if you get cancer, your life isn't destroyed. I mean, I think these are complicated questions. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are cultural uh, liberties and, and social li- – I assume social liberty has to do with the character of the social contract. So let, and- let's think of the, of, the, of, of the press, the media, right? It, we, we live in a capitalist-owned media where I would say the interests of oligarchs and capital are expressed in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post. You could imagine, and th- th- these were live questions in the 30s and the 40s, right? These, these, this was, it wasn't assumed. People were arguing in favor of things like the BBC, right? Things like publicly funded media, things like democratically funded media, where particular democratic communities get to do things like support local papers that no longer exist because of multinational corporations that have essentially stamped them out, and so we don't get local investigative reporting. So I think that's a form of cultural democracy that we don't even it's not even part of our imagination that we're essentially destroyed by the cold war and social democracy just in terms of redistribution and welfare the classic social democratic okay uh, i, I want to see the full argument I'm, I'm with you i'm with i mean if we were talking about uh apples and oranges and uh, widgets and uh television sets and whatnot commodities that people were consuming uh i'd say the demand and the interplay of demand and supply will bring forth whatever comes out but uh, just that. very quickly, a quick tangent because I think it's important. That resulted. That is resulting in the destruction of the literal climate, the extractivist consumption. Oh, come of, on, one thing at a time. Okay, <laughs> okay. You, you just changed the whole. That's a whole another topic altogether. I'm trying to talk about culture. I'm trying to talk about what determines what's on the public radio or non-public radio. <laughs> and I'm trying to agree. I'm, I was trying to make my way around to agreeing. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That the menu of options in the supermarket when I go in and look for something to eat is one thing. And the menu of sources of information about what's happening in my polity is another thing. And I might be willing to concede, even as a Hayekian friendly, neoliberal friendly economist who distrusts diktat and politically controlled allocations of resources because I think what you're calling democracy will end up being somebody's oligarchy where interested parties seize the means of cultural production on behalf of their own programs. I don't see anything necessarily democratic about that. But I was trying to say, at least if I'm talking about information and the shaping, for example, education, the education of children, Things of that. I I can see where I might not want to just let the market speak. I might want to have other means, but I still want to know how those means are accountable to the people. I still want the bureaucrats who are deciding what textbooks are on offer or 
what the menu is on television when I turn it on to get news to to somehow be responsive to the people. And, and I worry uh, a lot about uh, well-trained and focused cadres of interested parties who have their own ideological agenda seizing the means of cultural production uh, on their own behalf. I, so that's all <laughs> that's all I wanted to say. But you're saying the climate is being destroyed by capitalism as well, so let's not overlook that. Yeah, well, I'll just I'll answer the first part. Um, yeah. No, I think that's a meaningful that's a meaningful worry. I, I mean, I think one one could argue that sort of oligarchs or, or, or hierarchy is endemic to human society, and that there will always be different forms of hierarchies that um, that arise. And, and I, I tend to agree with something like that. The, 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 the question is what the hierarchy relies upon. Does it have to be wealth or does it have to be uh, other forms? Then there is a larger institutional question, which is I think you're pointing toward, which how do you develop meaningful institutions that prevent that sort of capture? Um, which I think is an open question, frankly. I don't think I have an answer to that. I think we need, uh, you know, if you figure the 1880s to the 1930s was the big era of institutional innovation that someone like Daniel Rogers wrote about in Atlantic Crossings, I think we need another era of that, of really thinking through what a genuinely democratic polity would be like, how you would basically, the big question is, how do you get the benefits of localism? You know, the conservative element, you know, organic communities, someone like Patrick Deneen would really emphasize with the benefits of large scale sort of pooling of resources that you only get at the national level. That's a real question, and I don't have an answer to that. Is Rogers the guy at Princeton? Uh, no, uh, Rogers is the guy at Princeton. Yeah, yeah, the historian, Daniel Rogers. Because oh, yeah. we spent a year together at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences uh, five years ago, and I got to know him. He's cool. He's a pretty cool guy. Yeah, he's a great uh, guy. But I don't, I don't know any I, – I know, I know there are serious historians out there. Uh, and he's one of them, and, and you're you're another one. Your erudition is impressive, Daniel. Uh, but okay, come on, let, let's let's uh, let's move on a little bit. Iraq, Afghanistan, American uh, prestige in the toilet, humiliation and defeat. Um, so nine eleven happened, but there was a lot of precursor up to nine eleven. Let me hear your passionate, critical assessment of the unfolding of events. I don't know where you want to start the Gulf War of 1992, 93, or, you know, I don't know where you want to start, but, but yeah, so, tell me how to think about this. So the way that I think about it is that um, the American empire needs a logic, Right, both for the people who practice it, you know, I, I'm not a, a pure Marxist in the sense is I don't just think the American Empire does what it does for capitalist or extractivist reasons. I think it, it's made up by actual people who believe actual things who have to, you know, do things like sleep at night. So I think the Cold War <laughs> ends uh, and the Soviet Union collapses. Right, the Soviet Union collapses between '89 and '91, ends uh, in late 1991. Um, so the, there's a big question you might remember. At the time about the so-called peace dividend, right? What are you going to do? You 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 created these hundreds of global bases. You have this massive yeah. defense budget because of the yeah. Soviet Union. So without the Soviet Union, uh, you know, it's the end of history. Fukuyama says liberal yeah. democracy is the only ideology. You should come home. Um, but it turns out that over the course of those four and a half decades, you know, forty-five to eighty-nine, let's say, um, forty-five to eighty-nine ninety-one, a bunch of interests were created. You know, in the military industrial complex defense contractors, but also think tanks, academic research centers, people like Condi Rice, who became Soviet specialists, you know, who dedicated their lives and careers to this thing. Moreover, so you have the establishment of four decades long of interests, but you also have the creation of four decades long of ideology, where people believe that global peace and prosperity depends on the United States dominating the world. So what actually happens is that in the 1990s, the empire doesn't really recede, but you instead see the search for new logics of justification. For example, very early on, the Gulf War of 1991, Saddam Hussein is referred to, it's ridiculous, as Hitler and as an existential threat to the United States, which is just absolutely absurd from any 
objective perspective. It's ridiculous. The United States is overwhelmingly powerful, surrounded by two oceans, has enormous amount of nuclear weapons, whatever. But I think what actually happens most interestingly is that in the search for the decades, you you begin you see this project of people trying to provide a new logic for empire through the idea of human rights. You know, the US doesn't intervene in Rwanda. The US only intervenes in Bosnia late. So you see a new justification for American empire by people saying that the United States will serve as the global policeman and it will essentially end genocide. Concomitantly, I think, uh, Glenn, I don't know your precise age, but you essentially see the boomers create a bunch of cultural products to justify the continuation of American empire. Schindler's List in 1993, Saving Private Ryan in 1998, right? They're returning to the stories of their fathers to justify the continuation of this empire by returning to the only good war, right? You don't get a lot of Vietnam things in the 1990s. You get a lot of World War II things because you see a justification for the American empire in that justification is ending genocide. But I actually don't think that's that powerful. You know, I think people are more concerned with their local communities and they're more concerned with what's going on. So what happens with 9-11, it is a gift to the American empire because now you're able to basically identify an ideological enemy, Islamic jihadism, Islamic radicalism, what have you, and you're able to pretend because it is pretending that this is an existential threat equivalent to the Soviet Union, a gigantic nuclear armed power or Nazi Germany. So what you have, it's not a surprise if immediately after 9-11 you get all of these wars because you basically have uh, the interests that I mentioned and the ideologies and the people that I talked about uh, governing what the United States does. And that leads to 20 years in Afghanistan. You know, if you think about Vietnam, we were there from 54 to 75, 21 years. Everyone's like, oh, no, Vietnam syndrome. We do it again 25 years later. It's absolutely ridiculous. And so what you see now, um, uh, we could talk about the war on terror, but what you see now is it's pretty clear to everyone that Islamic Jihad is not a threat to the United States in any meaningful way. Um, so now you have a return to great power competition and the identification of China, which I also think we're imposing a world spanning vision on as uh, an existential threat that is going to, again, as it always does, re-justify the continuation of this empire that does almost nothing for ordinary Americans. And in fact, I okay, would add, okay. destroys the world. <laughs> I love your passion, Daniel. Your students must really get a charge out of hearing you <laughs> lecture about these things. Uh, and again, I, mean, I have to confess my relative ignorance, so I, my pushback is going to be feeble at best. There will be people out there saying, how come you didn't ask him this and how come you didn't say that? Uh, I want to say a couple of things. So oil, I, I just want to hear what you have to say, oil. So here's how I understood as a non-expert what happened in the first Gulf War, which was that Saddam Hussein went into Kuwait that couldn't be allowed to stand. Uh, I am sure there's an elaborate uh, uh, you know, justification or account of why it is that that couldn't be allowed to stand. Uh, and uh, that had to be set right. And so it was set right. It was a limited action. Uh, we didn't uh, remove Saddam Hussein. We just simply expelled him from the Kuwaiti oil fields. Now, I thought there was such a thing as real uh, uh, national interest and that uh, the security of the supply of oil to the global capitalist hegemon or you know, machine, and I'm talking about in Western Europe, I'm talking about in East Asia, I'm talking about in North America, needed to be stood for. And that that's not, you know, what's the point in being a global power if you can't protect your interests, et cetera? So I, that's what I thought. Um, I'm, I'm worried about you, Daniel. You came right up to the edge of saying that you didn't say it, and I don't know that you believe it, and I'm not imputing it to you, but it was an inside job. You say we were lucky. I mean, we, we boomer elites who have gotten used to a Cold War and a global American footprint. We're lucky to have an excuse uh, to carry this forward. But what I want to say is, come on, man. Uh, uh, the guy that made Schindler's List, uh, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, Spielberg? Yeah. He wasn't in on it. Not on 9-11. He wasn't no, in no. on the project. He was just responding was he not to his artistic impulses to whatever funding opportunities and there might have been in the hollywood machine and to what was perceived to be a market for a commercial product out there surely it's a more complicated story than we just wanted to have an excuse to keep the machine oiled and and globally uh, footprinted to <clears throat> ask about what that generation's 
you know, that's the Archie Bunker generation, isn't it? I mean, it's, a, you know, that's, I, yeah. Anyway, so it, it, it sounded like a, a, a tail wagging the dog to try to explain American popular uh, artistic products with, <coughs> uh, with that kind of an account. Um, but anyway, we are complicit in the perpetuation of an um, ideologically uh, governed narrative about uh, of the need for American power uh, that is uh, clearly at odds with reality. Uh, Global war on terrorism is a fraud. Yes. <laughs> Made a lot of people a lot of money. Um, I think that uh, the, with the art question, I think that's very interesting because I think you're right. The story, if I was writing a book about Schindler's List, it wouldn't just be that, um, you know, that it was it was part of this larger structural force. But I, as a historian, I ask why the explosion in Holocaust and World War II memory right after the Cold War ended. Right. That to me, that to me is the question, the research question that I uh, I, I am you know this interested book? Excuse in. me. You know, this book by McNeil, the historian uh, at Chicago, I think it's the Holocaust in American life. Yeah, I, I, I the guy's I, name. No, I think is that Finkelstein? The ho no, no, no. That's Peter Nozick. No, he's the guy who wrote. He, oh, yes. he recently passed no away. Vic. No, no Vic. No, not Robert Nozick. Peter Novick, who recently passed right. away, wrote the best book about uh, the historical profession, titled "That Noble Dream." Um, but yes, and you I don't do like the Holocaust in American life. No, it's a, it's a good book. I think it's right. I, I think that I think that's right. Um, I mean, I, I think that's that's a long story. Going back, but when we're just talking about the 90s and the end of history, um, I think it, it's interesting that there's the return to the founding moment of history and the founding moment of American hegemony by the children of the people who created that order. It's not the only thing, but I think it's an important and telling uh, element. Band of Brothers. Well, I, I use know. that as an example of, of my point of, and I'm talking to you and you're the expert, that it's complicated and that, as I recall Novik's book, which I read years ago, the Jewish uh, leadership were reluctant to, in the immediate post-war, high Cold War McCarthyite period, were reluctant to make a big deal out of the Holocaust. Uh, they they were under a, a, a sort of strategic calculation about mm -hmm. how to manage the public image and, and uh, interest of the American Jewish community at that particular moment in history where the Cold War was just getting ramped up. <coughs> so you know he he reports about uh, uh, business uh, fairs where German companies would be feted in New York City and Jewish dignitaries would actually acquiesce in that sort of thing, even though they know these guys have been selling raw material to the Wehrmacht because uh, they didn't want to seem to be commies, you know. No, absolutely, he's right, and it's not until Eichmann. Uh, the Eichmann trial, <laughs> that Holocaust yeah. memory begins to enter American life, and then you have moments like Shoah. Um, I, I think then then we get into the particular representations of these cultural products and how they shift over time. Uh, and, and I would say the heroic character of the 1990s cultural products as opposed to the, you know, the, the banality of evil is a very complex idea. Um, Saving Private Ryan is not necessarily as complex, and neither is Schindler's List. And so then I think you look at the character, the qualitative character of these cultural products and see how they change over time for particular purposes. Unconscious. Okay. Spielberg is not doing this. And I do not think 9-11 was an inside job whatsoever. Whatsoever. <laughs> there was intelligence failures. There were failures to act that have been you know, reported by the most mainstream of sources. But I don't think it was an inside job by any stretch of the imagination. So you think we could have taken another 9-11 in um, 2004, another kind of hit like that? I, and I'm not talking about the objective military threat. I, I appreciate in this asymmetric situation that there's no threat to the American regime. There's no existential threat that's being posed. But I'm talking about the subversive effect on psyche and uh, the capacity to governance and what for governance and whatnot of another mass attack that killed thousands of people in the middle of Los Angeles or Chicago or Houston and that would have spread fear and would have fed all of the wrong impulses that we would want to tamp down and that there's an argument, even if we grant everything you say about the relatively overblown geopolitical stakes that are at work, there's an argument 
for ramping up a security uh, anti-terror uh, response just in the interest of trying to keep the lid on something and from, from the point of view of our internal uh, uh, you know, in, integrity. I mean, for example, how many restaurants can the Israelis allow to be blown up in the middle of Tel Aviv before they do something? It's not like the Palestinian terrorists threaten the regime, at least not in any short to intermediate run. If uh, mass Jewish immigration from Israel is occasioned by people's reaction to a sense of insecurity, that threatens the regime. This kind of argument. I mean, I would say the occupation threatens the regime. Uh, okay. All of those I, things. I'll see that point, but I was presuming the occupation wasn't on the table. Well, so for... that's the problem then, right? Like then, then we're dealing with symptoms, not causes. Ultimately, and, and, like, that, and likewise in the global uh, uh, Islamic uh, terror situation, right? It's, I yes, I I would say that the ultimate cause of a lot of these um, things. I mean, I'm a historian, but it's just the inequities that have developed between the global north and global south over 500 years of of global northern domination. The, that's the cause, and if we want to redress the problem of, of quote unquote terrorism, which is really a tactic and, and not a politics, and I point people to Lisa Stampnitsky's work on the problem of terrorism studies just as an approach, but let's just use it because it's common parlance. Uh, then we have to address those global iniquities uh, first. That that is the cause. Well, well hold on, hold on. Inequality in na- in the status of nations, of their level of civilization, their accumulation of wealth, their power, their Whatever is ipso facto morally problematic. Yes, the 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 success of the leading edge countries that grow rich uh, first, whose technology advances, whose populations become more effective at uh, production and so forth, has come at the expense necessarily. Yes, of the I mean, if you, I, I mean, where do we get our raw materials from? I mean, this is just Wallerstein, who you know. I mean, this is just world systems theory. Yeah, I know, but I'm not necessarily buying it. Of course, you got your raw materials from somebody. I had an idea. I developed a, a, a productive facility. I needed something that you have. We traded. We traded at some terms. Okay. That's, you know, I guess we're in Marx now. I guess it's exploitation now. I guess there was surplus value c- created by that trade, which I raked off the table while you stayed in rags. I guess that's your story, is it? It's 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 partially that story, but I think it's this is ultimately a philosophical question um, because of, of, of I am a, a humanist. I think e- every human life is is equal and 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 worthy of dignity. Uh, and I think in the system that's presently constituted, that's not uh, how things work. So my philosophical first principle would not result in the system we have now, which I would say necessarily depends on extractivism uh, and exploitation of weaker countries. Um, and then you could point to very specific, you know, instantiations of history. You know, the Trade Act of 1974. You know, the the squandering of the new international economic order, uh, the NIEO, the the the, the sort of um, pushing down of the new world information and communications order, attempts to create more global systems that were basically strangled in the crib by the North Atlantic powers. So it's not like this is just a free market operating and everyone's just benefiting. Oh, wait, wait a minute, just, just a point of historical clarity. So that that dispensation that comes out at Bretton Woods and so forth at the end of the of the war, the Second World War, that creates the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and uh, so on. Uh, is a part of this exploitative process, but it's also a part of that American uh, Pax Americana that you were prepared to credit as having. And how do you square those things? Well, I think those institutions were basically designed to reconstitute Europe. And it's you could meaningfully think of the North Atlantic as one gigantic polity. In a thousand years, that's what it's going to be viewed as. With the, 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 the sort of locus of power shifting and there were various civil wars. But that, since, <laughs> let's say, 1492, that is the core that has dominated the world. And so I think uh, those institutions were very good for the core and not so good for the rest of the world is how I would frame it. And within the core, the Americans are the leaders uh, and have been since 1945. They weren't always the leaders. Before them, it was the British. And there was this civil war we could refer to as World War One and World War Two. But since 1945, it's been U.S. domination. OK, how about this, Daniel? This is a little bit devil's advocate. I'm not I don't necessarily believe this, but I can hear what the response from a Peter Bauer. Do you remember who he was or did you do you know who he was? Peter Bauer was a British no. economist who wrote about the futility of foreign aid and about economic mm, inequality mm-hmm. between countries from a conservative point of view. 
in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. I don't know when he died, but he was very influential on the right, center right, in terms of uh, sophisticated thinking about international economic inequality. And he would have said the alternative to the uneven uh, terrain that you're pointing out, I mean, you don't have to just talk about the West. Look at China. Are you going to tell me China is a product of the West, too? I don't think so. We've got another few thousand years of history with a different vector going on in there. But in any case, there's going to be inequality between nations. Uh, and then there'll be all kinds of arguments about that. There will be some of cultural, historical, about natural endowments, about accidents of history, and so forth and so on. Your uh, egalitarian uh, sensibility is going to make going to lead to a leveling. All right, and we're all going to be starving to death, as opposed to uh, we're all going to be enjoying the benefits of 21st century uh, modern, modernity. Uh, sure, inequality is uh, uh, a consequence of conquest. It's a consequence of exploitation, as well as a consequence of trade and cooperation between differently endowed and differently inspired populations. But uh, what do you propose to do? World government? Are you going to tear down the high points in order so that you don't have anything that's unlevel? I mean, uh, uh, well, there's a couple of answers. I mean, I mean, if you think at like literal U.S. trade law, you could see where where the, it very clearly disadvantaged the raw material producing nations, and they were mad, but they couldn't do anything about it because the United States dominated the world. Just read a very interesting paper, particularly on the Trade Act of 1974, and really the rise of multinational corporations. And you have a bunch of global Southern leaders trying to get you know better better terms of trade, and the U.S. is like, no, <laughs> we're not going to do that. We're going to continue to exploit you. So there's actual historical instantiations, but even beyond that, um, Brow Broward is his name. I mean, I think you have to take into Bauer, account- B-A-U-E-R, Peter Bauer. Bauer. Peter Bauer. So then I, 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 this is the question that I have. Uh, what's your take on human-caused climate change? To Bauer or to me? To you. This is to you. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, they're going to call me a skeptic. And the reason is that I'm very impressed with what I don't know about what's going on and, and about the role of human activity in it and about the role of other forces in what's going on. I'm, I'm very impressed by what I don't know. I don't know what technology is going to be in 50 or 75 years. Uh, I, I don't know what geothermal activity might do to the climate that is episodic and un, hard, hard to predict, etc. And in virtue of the fact that I don't know a lot that I would need to know in order to be able to assess the consequences of any large structural interventions that were aimed at, quote unquote, saving the planet, I'm a skeptic. I'm a show me type guy. I'm a, uh, you know, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. Before you do that, let's think it through. I don't know how to weigh future versus present generations in any kind of philosophically coherent way. I'm, I, there, there just seem to me to be many, many hard problems. So there's a rush to judgment. There's a stampede that's going on here, I feel, of well-meaning in a substantial part. I, I don't, you know, and these are not children. Uh, the Greta Thunberg is not a child. Thunberg is not a child. I mean, she is a sensibility. She is representing a, a, a generational, I think it has to be taken very, very seriously. But when I was at the CASBIS, at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences five years ago, there were some scholars there whose uh, project was how to persuade people to get on board with global warming. I mean, with, with, you know, with a concern about uh, climate change, how to, how, how to overcome their natural, that kind of thing gave me the creeps. It, it gave me the willies, uh, uh, because I felt like, uh, a, a kind of messianic movement of almost quasi religious character, uh, resting upon cloudy and unclear foundations, both in terms of the technological uh, dynamic that's unfolding, as well as the normative judgments about what is the right and the wrong thing to do. Save the planet is not, ex it's a campaign slogan. I, I get that, but it's not exactly a, a public policy program. And uh, so, so I'm, I'm a skeptic in that, in that sense, but I'm awake to the, you know, when people tell me, we've got wildfires, we've got more intense storms, we've got, when every account of a meteorological event gets filtered through the climate change thing. I'm holding my wallet, intellectually speaking. I am resisting the t undertow to succumb to the moral panic. 
that that's where I am, man. So you guys cancel me. Go ahead. Cancel no, me no, if you no. Want to. I think that's uh, there's a couple of things. One, how socialist of you to rely on future technologies to solve the problem. <laughs> that's a very <laughs> Soviet Union approach. I, I didn't. Re- I, I don't want to rely. <laughs> just correct the record. I'm not saying it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. I'm just saying I don't know, and I right. want to factor in this uncertainty. I think that's that's fair. I mean, if you think about climate science as a relatively new discipline, uh, and it's involving the most complex system of all, the Earth. That is there. There, I think there a, a, a skepticism of at least that from an ontological or even epistemological perspective is warranted. Um, well I think said. it would be it would be silly, uh, silly not to. But then I think you get into the question of Pascal's wager. <laughs> you know, this is the ultimate. You know, Pascal's wager. If we get it wrong, we get it really wrong. Uh, and so then we have to think seriously about that. But then I would just ask you, based on what we do know, understanding that human <laughs> knowledge is itself a developing process. You know, we're both social scientists. Scientists, um, we understand that paradigm shift and knowledge accrues, et cetera, et cetera. Given what we know now, which is that you know, starting with human settlement twelve thousand years ago, as early as eight thousand years ago, you begin to see rice cultivation affect you know climate. Uh, starting in eighteen fifty, what happens in eighteen fifty? Two things dominate: industrialism uh, and capitalism. You begin to see genuine shifts in. Um, in uh, in the climate and, and heating, uh, and then in 1950, you get to see when growthmanship becomes the ideology of the entire world. And I would say that is unique to the West. Uh, I would agree that you know China is a complex society that isn't just you can't just say it was imposed. But the idea of constant growth, which is absolutely a 20th century invention, and the idea that a stable economy has to depend on growing and growing and growing and growing, and particularly in the United States, on consuming, consuming to be an American is to be a consumer. Going back to 9-11, what did George W. Bush tell you to do? Don't sacrifice, don't join up, shop. Um, To be a consumer is to be an American. I think it's pretty difficult to say that there's no connection between consumption, industrialization, capitalism, and climate change. I think that is a pretty clear connection. And if we're talking about Pascal's wager – uh, again, where the consequences could be so deadly, I think you have to do something about that. And you have to point to the fact that one country currently dominates the globe, and that's the United States. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. I've been to India. Uh, I've, I've, you know, it's a country of how many? Uh, a billion? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've seen that rising middle class in mm-hmm. cities like Kolkata and, and uh, Delhi and uh, so on. Those are hundreds of millions of people. They all want a vehicle. Mm-hmm. They all want an apartment. They all want an internet connection. They all want air conditioning. Every single one of them. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people like that all over this planet. I, I, I don't, uh, therefore, attribute the problem, which I agree is the problem, that we all need to have the ability to make a transatlantic flight at least once in our lifetimes. That, that that we should have cities like Phoenix. There's no reason for Phoenix to exist. The only way to Phoenix, but it's there. Uh, or, or that uh, a Chinese uh, middle class of 500 million people want to have highways, airports, uh, hotel towers, and, and the rest, just like the modern countries of the West. It seems to me that that's the problem. I, I remember, Daniel, and I, I'll stop. But this is my chance to actually say something that I think is meaningful. I remember getting into this debate with an Indian friend of mine about Gandhi and Ambedkar. And this had to do with the situation of Dalits in Mm -hmm. India. And the the basic point was Ambedkar was a lawyer and he was going to get the he was going to reconfigure all the regulatory apparatus to make sure that the Dalits got uh, better treated and got equality of citizenship and whatnot. And Gandhi was like. The, this is about the heart of Hinduism. And if, and if we don't transform the heart and soul of Hinduism so as to uh, uh, jettison this uh, caste hierarchic uh, uh, structures uh, that are embedded, you can write all the laws that you want and nothing's going to be any different. And I feel a little bit that way about this, which is to say, if we don't change the definition of a meaningful human life, well-lived in the 21st century, such that it's okay to be born and to die within a two-hour or four-hour drive from the same place and to live 
more modestly and in a different, uh, you know, sense of what it means to have a fulfilling life, including being prepared to surrender to a 60-year life expectancy instead of a 90-year life expectancy, if that's what it came to. You know, I mean, it's a spiritual challenge to us as a human community, mainly. There are technical challenges to be solved, but the fundamental challenges are spiritual challenges about what is the meaning of a good life. And right now, our carbon footprint is way, way, way too high. And I don't think fiddling around at the margins is going to do a lot about that. I think that's right, and I think if if uh, the the Chinese and rising Indian middle classes lived like the American middle class, the world would be destroyed. I think that's difficult to argue against in terms of carbon emissions. But Glenn, I would I would say that your spiritual problem is ultimately rooted in material. I mean, what destroyed those communal bonds? What destroyed those those organic connections that used to define people? I would say it's capitalism, uh, and and uh, there's a lot of conservatives would say it's capitalism. Again, I don't know if you've read Patrick Deneen's "Why Liberalism Failed," but that's a very conservative critique of liberalism, and it's ultimately a critique of capitalism because that's what dislocated all of these organic communities. What forced people from rural spaces to urban spaces? What forced the, the dissolution of the churches? What forced the the bowling leagues, et cetera, et cetera? It's neoliberal capitalism. So your spiritual problem is both a spiritual problem and a material problem. And you, if you don't change the material, the superstructural transformation of the spirit is, I don't think, going to have much of an effect. How does capitalism play into you? How does capitalism play into your story? It's the natural order of things. Uh, it, it's the the baseline against which uh, you were going to measure whatever else that you wanted to do. It's it's laissez faire, and then we layer on top of that the state structure and and the uh, implementation of uh, in effect coercion through law and uh, and so on about property about uh, what people can do in terms of exchanging you know uh, goods between each other and on what terms and and so on. But I, I take capitalism as like the – I wanted to say it's modernity that's your enemy, and capitalism just happens to be a, an, an instrumentality. And I also wanted to say if if uh, my perspective is accepted, which is this is the – we're fish and this is the water, the, the, the free exchange, the truck barter in exchange, this is Adam Smith, this is just what social animals do. Uh, the, the accumulation, the the uh, innovation, the uh, you know commercial. I mean, again, you're the, the historian, but I assume these ideas about credit and double entry bookkeeping and banking and you know exchange, you know, etc. are uh, are kind of baked into the cake. And so capitalism is what happened. And then it's a question of what do you want to do besides that, besides leaving people free to do these things. And so then we have a debate about some structures. But, but socialism is not where I would come out of that. But Smith had the theory of moral sentiments before the wealth of nations. So his whole, this whole thing was based on this idea of organic community. You know, this the wealth of nations does not make sense without that idea, in my opinion, that basic idea of organic community. And I think it's it's as an empirical matter, those sorts of organic communities don't exist anymore. We're all agonistic individuals who don't even we don't even live agonistically. We live online. <laughs> you know, we're staring at each other through screens and social media. So I, I, I think that the rebuilding of that organic community necessarily must come from an attenuation at the very least or tempering of capitalist exchange. All those sorts of ideas of laissez-faire okay. and Free market, free market were premised on the notion of community first. They okay, don't I'm exist with without it. That, that's not an argument against capitalism as such, but it is an argument for against laissez-faire. And it's an argument for saying that the values that the market affirms are not the only or even the most important human values. Uh, it's an argument for saying that, I mean, you say cities, urbanization, and you see it everywhere. We, we, we see coming, people coming. Yeah, they're coming for lucre. They're coming, they're coming to get paid. They're coming to do, they're coming to do business, but they're also coming because it's a whole lot more interesting to be in the city than it is to be out there in the countryside where everything is flat and plain and, and unvariegated and, and unstimulating. Agreed. So, you know, urbanization is a global phenomenon. I'm, I'm sure the capitalist system abets that's why the buildings are a hundred stories tall and not ten stories tall, but they'd still be people would still be coming out of the sticks and trying to find each other 
as best they could, I think, no matter what. And I mean, Mark said that you have to pass through capitalism. It's not the end state, but you have to use the the things developed by capitalism and put them basically make humans in charge of them and not the opposite way around. And I think it's pretty clear given, you know, our, our the various social dislocations of the last 40 years that the algorithm has become conscious and we are not in control of what happens. I don't think a human <laughs> a human controlled society would be where we are. You know, I don't no, I just I, don't think it would be. So I mean and that's love- a fundamental problem for actually existing capitalism because you have normative capitalism, the theory, and then you have what historically has happened. And what historically has happened is that Jeff Bezos owns more wealth than an incredible amount of of people. And that's not a human-directed society um, by any stretch of the imagination. And then that leads me back at least to first principles. Uh, And that leads me back to tendencies of capitalism. Okay. Well defended, uh, your your anti-capitalist position. Well defended indeed. I mean, I just wanted to remark that I'm amused by the analogy, uh, the algorithm has become conscious. (laughs) I mean, that's an interesting... Uh, kind of uh, epigraph for a book about the history of economic uh, ideas. The algorithm has become kind. What began in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, even into the 18th century, as a modernizing, empowering kind of uh, thing has has become, as it were, a thing for itself. Uh, you got me thinking over here, Dad. You got me <laughs> Let's talk about one more thing before we break. Sure, which is yeah. We're both college professors. We're both going back. COVID-19 has struck. I don't know about you, but my first class that I taught last week was an interesting experience. <laughs> Everybody is masked in the classroom. There's mandated vaccine. Joe Biden has got nothing on Brown University. I get a note from my provost reporting, we do not have any record of your vaccination status. You will be placed on involuntary leave without pay uh, unless by a date certain. And he's got a date in there. (laughs) I immediately went online and made my CVS appointment to get my second Pfizer shot because I actually do want to continue to get paid. But uh, everybody's got a mask on. The kids have got masks and they raise their hands and they want to talk. And I can't because I'm getting a little hard of hearing over here and I can't hear what they're saying. And they can't take their mask off. I'm permitted to take my mask down. Because I'm lecturing, you know, and I'm thinking, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> First of all, I'm thinking, I don't know, because really, what are the eff- efficacy of these various things? I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying they don't work. I'm not saying they do. I'm saying I don't know. And I wonder if my provost knows. I know what he's doing. He's citing the authority from this professor in the School of Public Health and the CDC and whatnot. And then he's just and I, and I can see what he's really doing, which is covering his ass. He's being a good bureaucrat by positioning himself in such a way that the various threats and whatnot to the good order and functioning of his institution are kept at bay. But uh, it's it's just a kind of odd experience uh, here. I'm wondering what you think about this. It's a it's a really odd experience, um, and it and it's interesting because, like like you said, I I mean I think it's just intellectually honest to say we're very early on in these vaccines, and you know uh, they seem to work, but they seem to be some breakthrough. And if I, if I was a the father of a young child, I think I'd be a little nervous, someone under twelve, of having to go back to school. Um, and I think universities are in a really interesting position because um, according to what I understand, according to the CDC guidelines, which is what we have to go uh, go with and everything, that we probably shouldn't be massing in closed classrooms speaking to, um, to students. But the university finds itself in a very difficult position because over the last 30 or 40 years, it has essentially justified increasing tuition by becoming summer camp for late adolescence. And you can't have a summer camp online that you need to have, you know, the dining halls, the rock, the rock climbing experiences. You are all the so cynical, man. It's the truth. It's, it's the oh, only God. university I've known. You're breaking and this, my heart. And, and this is, uh, it sucks. I wish it were otherwise. Um, and I think a lot of the, uh, we were talking a little bit before we got online, your recent conversation with John McWhorter, and yeah. John said something along the lines of that universities should kind of assume 
this pastoral function of you know teaching students right and wrong and what it's going to be what they're going to accept but instead they you know they they play into student demands and th- when i heard that i was like of course they do they're they're corporations and these are the customers so what are you going to do so universities going back to covid find themselves in a very interesting place where they need to provide the summer camp experience regardless of whether that's the quote unquote right thing to do in terms of covid vaccination so i think this reveals a lot about the state of the modern American university, which there are other instantiations of it, I believe we talked about, about the fact that, you know, most professors are adjuncts. Most professors don't get benefits. Most professors don't get a living wage. Most professors aren't able to invest in the social relationships upon which the university that you began your life in, in the 60s and 70s, really did. So I think it reveals a lot about the structure of the university and how um, <laughs> degraded might be too strong a word, but where it is in 2021, and it's not exactly a heartening situation. What was your sense of the relative effectiveness as a teacher? I assume you taught during the pandemic by remote of the relative of the two different ways of interacting with students, either through some kind of video interface uh, online or in the classroom with office hours in the office and stuff like that, Uh, just in terms of the pedagogic effectiveness. It's a really interesting question. I I think it took a lot more out of me, like to to be the, like the dynamic and charismatic. It's easier to do in person than it is online, and I think that's really crucial to teaching. Um, but from my understanding, I think learning outcomes were actually relatively similar. Um, granted, I only taught lecture courses. And small seminars of like 10 people, 12 people. So I was really able to like focus and, and get in. But the learning <laughs> outcomes seemed relatively, uh, relatively similar, which is interesting because I wonder if in the next, you know, 10, 12, here, Glenn, I'm very curious. So one of the benefits of being a university professor is that you're able to control your time. You don't get the money. You know, uh, that that your, your banking or law peers do, but you're able to control yeah. your time. But there's a transformation right now in white collar capitalism where bankers and lawyers, et cetera, don't need to be in the places yeah. where they live, right? They, you could live in Lake Tahoe and work out of a New York it. office. I'm thinking so, about doing that myself, actually. <laughs> exactly. So I'm wondering how the university is going to respond because one of the big benefits of being a professor just went away in a year. You know, uh, are they going to increase pay? Oh, that's are they such going a nice to. Point. Yeah, you know, so I, I, it's really interesting. Um, so they're in a tight bond because now their workforce, you know, I could make more money becoming, you know, a marketing consultant and living in wherever I want to live and not going into into school uh, wherever I teach. Um, so I wonder what they're going to do because they have to have students there to give them the quote unquote college experience, which is not about learning, which is about getting a credential for a job and having fun for four years, at least amongst the colleges we're talking about, not community colleges. We're talking about research universities. But it's so cynical. You don't you don't think any of these kids are coming in there because they're excited about physics or about uh, English literature uh, or about sociology because they want to hear from Daniel Besner, I saw his piece in the, the Nation last week. I mean, he's really a smart guy. Or they want to play the piano or the fiddle, or or they, you know, they they're all just consumers. There's nobody is seeking. I just read this book by this guy Montaz. I forget his first name. He's a Dominican uh, American. Uh, teaches at Columbia. He was running the core curriculum at Columbia for a long time. The book is his reflection on Plato, Freud, Gandhi. And um, uh, St. Augustine, you know, these are among the readings in the classically oriented core curriculum uh, tradition at Columbia, which has been there for 75, 80 years, how long it's been there. And he was talking about being this kid. He immigrated from Dominican Republic when he was eight or nine years old. He didn't speak English at all. He finds some old dog-eared book in a trash pile somewhere that he starts turning to, and it's a translation of some Latin, you know, Ovid or some kind of whatever. And he gets drawn into the classics, and his whole world expands. And he, because Daniel, I remember what it felt like to encounter the university when I was a kid myself. And I wasn't coming from nearly the kind of disadvantaged background that this gentleman was. I English was my natural language. It was a working class family, well stable in Chicago. But those books that I encountered when I got to Northwestern and that whole experience of learning about Algeria. I remember learning about the French and Algerian. I remember reading Camus and Sartre and uh, Fanon. I remember reading Fanon, man. 
I was a radical in my youth. And, and it was like this. You don't think kids are getting that? You don't think anybody is having that experience? Of, of course some people are. And I bet, the, <laughs> I bet they're rich and I bet they're at Brown in Columbia. Um, I think that the, uh, I think that for most of the people at large state schools, like the one that I teach at are freaked out about getting a job. Um, and they should be freaked out about getting a job. Inequality is decreasing and it's very difficult as a young person to graduate from university and be guaranteed a job to pay off your enormous amount of student loans, which I imagine you or the author of that book didn't have. So I think, again, neoliberal capitalism destroyed the university. You were uh, you were in the Fordist economy. You know, you were in a, a closer to full employment economy. And so uh, as, as usual, the material dominates in people's experience of things. And they're mostly worried in my experience about getting a job. I'll give you one instance. So I'm in the, I, I teach in the honors program. I love teaching in the honors program. I love all of my teaching, but I really enjoy teaching in the honors program. Um, it's very driven kids. Guess what? Almost every single one of them are majoring in STEM. And it's not and it's not because they don't have intellectual interests. It's not because some of them wouldn't rather teach uh, history or wouldn't rather, you know, read read literature. They're all majoring in STEM. And I ask them, why are you majoring in STEM? And every single one of them says to get a job. And I ask them every single time, what is the purpose of college? And literally, I've only been doing it for seven years. Literally every single time, the answer is to get a job. At Brown, it's okay. different. At Columbia, it's different. At Yale and Harvard, it's different. And what I think will happen is what is already happening is that those schools will where be will be where the rich go to study the liberal arts, and everywhere else they'll turn into pseudo vocational schools where the purpose is to get a job. And that's I think a betrayal of the university and one of the best institutions this country ever created, which is the American Research University. Okay, Daniel said with uh, Besner esque. A plum and passion. I wonder what your alternative uh, scenario is. Excuse me. Thank you. Hey there. I almost. Uh, 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 my I wife think just came in. Oh, hello, yeah, fellow Bert, what, what, Bernie uh, sister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a Bernie bro. That's for sure. Uh, she's okay with Bernie bro. She doesn't. Uh, oh, she doesn't like. Okay, she's a fellow Bernie bro. Uh, I mean, I think first you got you got to get rid of student debt. Any any. Any step number one, jubilee on student debt for the generation that's been indebted by by universities, choices made by their elders, and then a massive refunding of American universities of the kind that came with the National Defense and Education Act of 1958, ideally not tied to a Cold War with China. What I cynically think will happen is that uh, arguments for competition with China will be the justification through which American universities are refunded. I wish we could appeal to our higher natures to refund these universities, but I don't feel that it's going to happen. You know, I thought of another alternative. I'm not advocating it. I'm just stating it, which is downsizing the universities from the humongous footprint that they now have, the four-year BA generating institutions, to two things. One is a much more intensive and focused vocational uh, slash professional education where people go for two or three years and they learn how to do the thing that they're going to make a living doing and they get a job doing that thing. And then for those who will elect and are suited uh, <laughs> to uh, a different kind of track, uh, a, a more a conventional uh, academic experience where the, the classics, the arts, uh, humanities and so forth are, are taken more seriously. And there's no expectation that you're going to have to earn uh, $100,000 a year when you leave here so that you can pay off your, your, enormous, uh, your enormous debt. But it would be a transformation of the of the landscape, and a lot of the people who are falling in between, who, who are basically coming for a pre professional experience that allows them to get that credential and get the job, but who are not interested in reading any of these books that I thought were amazing and blew my mind when I was a kid, then they just uh, don't get to the university; they they, they go someplace else. The problem I see with that, though, is we live in such a class striated society that I imagine that would be reflected along class lines. I, I don't imagine yes, that the, yes. the richer people will be going to the liberal arts schools and the poorer people will be becoming carpenters. Yes, you're probably so right about that. You'd have to you'd have to solve you'd have to get rid of capitalism first, <laughs> and then and then we could talk about reforming the university. 
then we'll all be so broke there won't be any point in talking at all. <laughs> this is Daniel Besner, everybody, at the uh, University of Washington, the Jackson School of International Studies. This is Glenn Lauer. We're signing off. We have a kind of lively friendship going here, Daniel. We ought to keep it going. Yeah, Glenn, I, I love coming on. Happy to come on whenever. All right, my friend. I'm going to call it quits. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Oh yeah, no, it was great. Thanks, thanks so much. I love, I love our conversations. They're really fun. <laughs>